I think life is intrinsically meandering. So I, we never end up where we intended to go. And one of my jobs as someone who works in the cracks between disciplines is to just allow that meandering to happen. Hello, and welcome to Start Talking, an art gallery of Windsor podcast, where we talk about everything and anything arts related in the Windsor Essex community. I'm Michaela, and I'm the Digital Initiatives Coordinator at the Art Gallery of Windsor. And hi, I'm Abby Lee, and I am the Audience Engagement Coordinator, uh, also at the Art Gallery of Windsor. We have a fantastic episode ahead, so I'm going to let Michaela introduce our very special guest, Dr. Jennifer Willett, who is the founder and director of the Incubator Art Lab. We're started. Hey, here we are. Okay, so today on the podcast, we're here with Dr. Jennifer Willett of the Incubator Lab at the University of Windsor. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Thanks for, you know, devoting some of your time from your busy schedule to talking with us today. All right, so Jennifer, tell us a bit about bioart. Sure, um, bioart is art, contemporary art, that uses biology and living or maybe even recently deceased media in the production of art. The difference between bioart and other forms of art is that bioart often engages in these life forms as a media. So things like algae or bacteria, but it could also be things like plants or animals, taxidermy sometimes, like maybe recently deceased biological organisms are often um, conceived of as part of bioart. Bioart often involves the use of scientific tools or technologies or methods, but not always. Some people might say that ecological art could be bioart, performance art could be bioart. One of the key defining features that I present um, when I'm trying to describe bioart to people is that bioart makes very clear the sort of ethical dilemmas of being a body and interacting with other organisms, other non-humans on this planet in a way that other art maybe does not make that proposition as immediate and clear because there quite often is a life form that is either, you know, and that you're involved in some sort of sentient or metabolic relationship with in an art experience. Yeah, that is that is incredibly interesting. I, I personally hadn't heard of bio art before kind of talking with you on this podcast and, and learning a little bit more about it. So thank you for going more into detail. I'd love to hear as well, um, what are some of the things that you do at the Incubator Lab? Sure. So Incubator Art Lab was established in 2009 at the University of Windsor, and it came about after many years of me traveling around and trying to negotiate to work in laboratories as an artist all over the world and wanting to create a home base for myself, but also a lab where the, the first priority and the goals were artistic ones, rather than working in environments where the first priority was always the scientific research. And there's nothing wrong with that. It was actually very generous of a lot of scientists to allow me in their spaces, but I was constantly like worried about contaminating their research, breaking their social mores. And so um, one of the reasons why I took this job, oh, I should also say I, I came to the University of Windsor in 2008, and I took this job because I wanted to build a bioart lab where this type of work would have the priority and I would be able to do durational projects. Um, Bioart often takes a long time. Life forms have long, slow metabolic lifespans, right? And uh, also sometimes it doesn't go your way. Like Bioart often does not cooperate because you're collaborating with these other organisms. And so it can take a number of tries. 
So before I came here, I would work in other people's labs and I'd negotiate a couple months and I'd fly to Zurich and then the project would die and it would be very stressful. I just wanted to create a more durational home-based relationship with these practices rather than these like very um, heightened but short and uh, trepidatious experiences. So now we've been around for a long time. I'm very lucky to have enjoyed my time here in Windsor. And we have a new facility uh, at the University of Windsor in the downtown campus in the armories. And so there's probably a dozen bioart facilities of this caliber in the world, but they're all a little different. So our facility is very unique. It's a, it's a BSL level two laboratory and BSL level two is biosafety level two. And that means that we can work with human byproducts in that space, or we can work with organisms that have some known harm to humans. And that's very hard to find in the bioart genre. Uh, most of the labs are BSL level one or like high school grade science laboratories. The other thing that different is really the big twist on our lab is that it has a glass wall with the main atrium of the armories building. So the bioart lab is intentionally on display. And we want people on a daily basis to be able to walk by and just see what we're doing in there and have that transparency and that openness about scientific practices. But also what we're working on and what we just received funding for this last year is that we have multimedia equipment and theatrical lighting and sound that will be coming into the BioArt Lab. So it's not just a lab now, it is also a performance theater. It is also an exhibition venue. So the goal is that we'll be able to exhibit artworks that cannot leave a, a research grade lab to a general public audience through that window. And then we'll be able to host um, site specific performances or events. And I'm thinking about things like bioart opera. I'd like people to be able to come in and sit down and see an hour or 20 minute performance of uh, live music mixed with uh, DNA extractions. And so that's opening up a whole new genre of performance art that doesn't exist. And so uh, in my community, people are very excited about this laboratory. Well, that was a fantastic answer. First of all, I, I would never like in my wildest dreams have conceived of, you know, having people participate or be able to view bio art opera. Like that is just, you, you mixed like three different things there, the sciences, the visual arts and music and, that's, that's just amazing. A lot of our work is around democratizing biotechnology. It's about demystifying biotechnology. It's about creating more real authentic relationships and maybe even critical relationships with this technology, right? I, I really feel like we've, at some point we sort of like left that biotech future to the scientists. And um, my interest is in um, bringing that experience and interest and criticality to very diverse communities. So um, I really, I think Windsor is a great place to do this type of work. We have a really interesting city. We're also in, a, in the heart of the Great Lakes Basin. We have a really uh, high immigrant population to Windsor. This is a great place for people from all different backgrounds to have some hands-on experience and sort of together reimagine what our biotech future could look like. So I'm interested in these futures that look to the future, but also look to the past, like farming, ranching communities, indigenous knowledge, like baking, you know, <laughs> uh, and bringing all of those types of experiential knowledge together towards maybe a more egalitarian, a more sustainable, more holistic biotech future for all of us. I'm glad that that's at the forefront of your concerns for your practice is the, um, the democratization, pardon me, and um, 
egalitarian aspect of the practice because a lot of people, whenever they create, they don't, they don't always think about, um, you know, how it's going to affect the, the larger world around them. They, um, a lot of the time, the creation is just about self-expression. So it's really awesome that you're, you're casting the net that wide. Going back a few steps, like I agree with you, Michaela, that I would never have conceived such an interdisciplinary relationship between biotech and the arts. I mean, generally, at least in my experience, arts and science are spoken of as kind of two binary oppositions that don't often cross and you're sort of expected to choose between one or the other. And so it's so refreshing to hear about your work that it's so interconnected with arts and science and that can it can be even more fulfilling because it's connecting both I'm I'm kind of curious as I like whenever I, I hear of interdisciplinary works like this I'm always wondering like okay how how did you come across this like what was the path so did you like start out by going forth in academia with arts and sciences or did you start off on like one path and then slowly start to kind of meld both of the arts and sciences together? I think life is intrinsically meandering. So we never end up where we intended to go. And one of my jobs as someone who works in the cracks between disciplines is to just allow that meandering to happen. And that's one of the things I encourage in my students is to be open to those, those moments. So in my life, I always wanted to be an artist. I knew when I was very young, I wanted to be an artist and I wanted to travel. And so I I was very clear on that. But what happened during my undergraduate degree is that my topic always returned to science and technology and the body. And maybe the the body's subjective experience of science, technology, medicine, right? Um, I just kept always returning to those subject matters. And then little things started happening that crossed over where I was actually working with science. So for example, during my undergraduate degree at the University of Calgary, I negotiated my way into the human anatomy lab and I was doing anatomical drawing in there for a period of time. And I, and I learned a lot about anatomy. I learned a lot about death, like, right. And that sort of having a very visceral relationship with a deceased body. But I also learned about like going somewhere where you don't belong and how, and how maybe you do belong there or how to negotiate your way into these places. And then also the, the fascination then of being there. So it wasn't just, working with the anatomical specimens, but it was also watching the med students practice their surgical techniques. And I was riveted, absolutely riveted. And so after that experience, um, it was a number of years before I was in a lab again. It wasn't until many years later, I was working on a project called Biotechnica with a longtime collaborator named Sean Bailey. And uh, we were presenting these virtual projects around biotechnology and very critical, very like Frankenstein criticality of biotech. And we met these artists from Australia. Their name is Oran Katz and Yonet Zur from uh, Symbiotica, which is one of the most important bioart labs in the world, maybe even the first one. But they were like, you know, that's really interesting and all, but why don't you come try this stuff for real in our lab? And it was really terrifying um, because I think in art, you know, we can do lots of things that we would never do in real life, right? And I love that freedom. And then all of us, it was sort of like the shift from like theater to performance art. So to go from like making work about biotech and with images of biotech to actually doing biotech was like very challenging. 
ethically. I was really challenged ethically, viscerally, like it was kind of gross and it smelled bad sometimes. Uh, I wasn't very good at it. It was embarrassing how many times I dropped my cells on the floor and contaminated everything. Um, so it was like a really catastrophic change. And it was really hard to get over that change and to process that change. Um, but after a while, I was really hooked. And since then, I've always worked at that intersection where there's a moment of science or a moment of, other, of collaborating or nudging other life forms in my artistic practice. It seems like it, it takes like mistakes like that or like visceral, unprecedented changes like that to really um, help you realize a meaningful career though. Like when, when something really affects you like that, that's when you know, isn't it? Yeah, it was really profound. Like I cried a lot because I wasn't sure. It, it didn't feel good. Also, I was a vegetarian at the time and I had to do all this animal training and like research facilities. And um, But I also was like, again, the same thing as being in the anatomy lab. I was fascinating. I realized that there's a huge curtain over this aspect of our life on the planet. And like the research is amazing, but also the ethics is very complicated and really on a case by case basis, like radically complicated. And then the other thing I learned is that there's this enormous biomass of organisms that are just bred for scientific research that we don't really count as part of the species we share our planet with. And I think that they, they're you know, really important to bring into the fold and to think about things like sustainability and uh, animal husbandry or ethics, bioethics as applied to those organisms in the same sense that we might to animals in the wild or in the city. You know, you've already extensively addressed ethics um, in, in regards to your practice, but I was wondering if there was anything else that you wanted to say about ethics and bioart, or even your practice specifically with bioart. So ethics is a huge component of what I do and the genre. So let's get into a few different aspects of that. First of all, since I work at a university and I receive funding through universities and through the government, I am subject to the Tri-Council policy on ethics um, involving human research, and I'm also subject to um, the Canadian Animal Research Ethics Board. Uh, I'm also subject to all the health and safety regulations that a scientist or any other laboratory would have. So on the one hand, being in an institution is wonderful. I get an enormous amount of support, a lot of infrastructure, right? Um, but also the paperwork and the coordination of that is substantial because I am subject to the same ethics as a scientist who's doing research with a variety of organisms. As an artist, you have to be a certain type of artist to undergo that durational paperwork, argument-oriented way of, of, of practicing, right? Because I quite often have to do a year of paperwork before I can start a type of practice that I might want to do as an artist. But I'm fine with that. I actually think that um, I, ch I made that choice and I'm very happy comfortable with that choice. I'm very good at the paperwork. I, I ascribe and value those ethical mores that our um, culture is attempting to sort of safeguard through that paperwork. It is sometimes a little bizarre and Kafka-esque in its bureaucracy, but I overall agree with the general principles and I'm happy to follow those rules. So that's one level of ethics, right? And often what is described as ethical within a scientific community may not be ethical within an artistic community or within a social community, right? So also, you know, scientific communities and that knowledge are really rooted in a very colonial, hierarchical, Western value system of knowledge. And I would definitely agree that the Canadian, the Tri-Council in Canada is really attempting to address those, some of those concerns but I still think they reproduce those power structures in the type of work that they produce. 
Also, I will say that biologic, so another ethical level I engage with is my own choices about what biological entities I engage with and how. So there's probably a lot of research that I would be approved to do through those channels that I don't feel is ethically okay for me. So there's also that thing that's going on. So for example, I'm very hesitant to work with sentient organisms. Anything with a vertebrae is like a little, uh, and I'm, I'm very, I would not want to be involved in the breeding and maybe harm of those organisms for my work. That does not mean that I'm opposed to animal research across the board. Again, a case-by-case -case basis. I could see some real areas where used sparingly and well, animal-based research could be really important, but that is not something I care to engage with um, for an aesthetic or political or artistic um, query. So I often avoid that type of research. So I'm not gonna, you know, cut the legs off of salamanders to see how many legs I can get to grow back, for example, for my own practice. I also would like to say that is not necessarily a judgment on other people for having made some choices in that direction. And then there's also like human research ethics. I'm really interested in alternative models for maybe like intersectional feminist models for what a research lab could be. Who's allowed to be there? Who has a voice at the table? What is allowed to be said, right? So I'm really also interested in the ethics of building like a community that is more egalitarian and accessible and open to difference. And so that's like a huge component of my research. I would say like social practice maybe is in some respects invisible to some of my audience, but is like a central component of my practice. And that involves in how I teach my classes, how I run my research lab, and then how my lab is connected to the community and, and ways that we engage with, with Windsor. So I think that is also a form of ethics in my practice. And then the other thing I really struggle with a lot, I don't know about you guys, uh, I struggle a lot with sustainability in contemporary art. And I wonder about the ethics of that. And sometimes I talk myself into things and then I'm wondering if we're not just all creating more waste and burying ourselves in plastic garbage. And so my, my feelings about that often fluctuate. Um, one of the things that we're working on in the lab right now is really doing a sustainability assessment. Like, for example, maybe we should move back to glassware. Uh, historically, everyone used glassware in the labs. Now it's not as easy to keep clean and it breaks and that's a health and safety hazard. People can cut themselves. But is that hazard more or less hazardous than plastic, single-use plastic consumption? And historically, they would say single-use plastic consumption is the way to go because then the researchers are less likely to cut their fingers, less likely to get bloodborne illnesses or infections. But now we might actually say, no, maybe those smaller injuries that are short-term are, are less harmful than the long-term injury of 10 years of research with plastics. It's, it's, it's an ethical array of, of things to consider in my field. I think it's really, it's really fascinating. It's really a tribute to the work that you're doing that you have so much so much care and so much um, forethought when it comes to doing this work, like, and again, in so many different areas. And it seems like you have a, uh, an approach that's very rooted in um, harm reduction and uh, like community inclusion. When you were going into this work, did you have a real like social justice focus pushing you forward? Or did that social justice framework come through the work as you were doing it? That's a great question. I would say a bit of both. I'm always like very empathetic and concerned about others' experience of things. And then as a young person, I became very sort of like socially and politically active. 
but then I think maybe also working in institutional spaces, the quandaries of those spaces made themselves visible to me. And then I, I realized my own agency, but also the politicalness of having a woman who was an artist working in scientific labs. And so it sort of like kind of grew and grew and grew and unfolded as I went along. Um, the other thing I have to say is that I just like, you only live once. Why not have a nice time? Why not like share with people? Why, like I, I would like, I, I want to build a lab that is a little more joyful and that involves pleasure and kindness. Um, I actually completed a, a work in 2012 that's become the central sort of focusing idea behind the lab and the work that I do as an artist. And it's called um, Biotechnology is a Technology of Love. And I got thinking about all of these relationships that I have with the organisms in the lab. Couldn't we redefine those relationships as ones rooted in love? And when I mean love, I don't mean romantic love. I mean like ecstatic love. I mean like unfurling of the universe love. I mean like gardening love. Like, <laughs> you know, that sensation of, of sensing and being sensed by another organism is a very ecstatic feeling. And, and that type of love is not, it's not romance and it's not, Duty, duty, duty. It's like, it's really, it's also acknowledging each other's suffering. It's acknowledging imbalances, challenges. Like in the lab, there's suffering and death. Um, there's also suffering and death on a farm. Um, we're just, our lives are very muted from that aspect of the life cycle, right? Because we go to the grocery store and we don't have to look that suffering and death in the eye. And so the love that I experience in the lab is one that is like looking your meat in the eye and being grateful and trying to be kind and enjoying your dinner and all at the same time. I really like what you spoke to about the love being something that's very all-encompassing because I think generally when we think of of love in a more traditional sense, you think of it as being only intrinsically tied to positive emotion, but really I think it can be as fulfilling potentially even more in some cases fulfilling to show that love when it's harder to do so and when the circumstances are less less positive potentially but in in those cases i think we need that love all the more to really not stop ourselves from connecting with with others and with organisms uh, even when the situation makes it difficult like those are the really fulfilling um, moments. I was just going to say like that that is a far kinder approach than most people take to their interactions with any other living thing. Like because when you do that you're giving the living thing that you're working with its dignity which is something that a lot of people forget to do either when they're you know eating their meat and that's you know how they're sustaining their their own body or even when they're just kind of um, not being mindful of where they step it's really admirable that that's that's such a huge part of your practice like that love for just living things for for other parts of our environment and our ecosystem in general is is very moving thank you it's also like i said it's messy and complicated and sometimes it doesn't go well mm -hmm. and also sometimes we're all hypocrites like you think you're doing a good job and then you fail terribly like all of that is all part of it yeah and part of the experience of of being human too right so as abby lee said you can't let it stop you from from connecting and from trying can you tell us a bit more about your team about the people you work with who are also involved in these kind of practices sure so it started off really small it was really like me and i was in like a little paper making studio in the old LaBelle building. I don't know if you guys have ever been over there and the LaBelle building had mold in it. So all of our projects had this beautiful blue mold. So we just like in, 
invited it into the artwork. And it was like me and maybe one other or two other students at any given time. But over the years, it's really grown. It's become a little bit of a phenomena. So we have some staff members. We usually have a research coordinator or someone who comes from the arts, like an arts administrator. We have a scientific technician. Really important to have like a paid scientist on staff. And then we have other people who work for us, like an accountant and, um, you know, maybe project managers who come and go at the staff level. I should also say I have an artist assistant who I've worked with for over a decade now who's been part of this group and has like a real makerly hands-on relationship with my practice. I should name her, her name is Billy McLaughlin and she's local here in Windsor. She's a, um, a graduate from our program. She's a, a supply teacher through the school board. And Billy and I have worked up this like whole vocabulary where she can be like, huh? And I sort of go, oh yeah, it needs more of this. And then she can make it happen. So we have like a really visceral relationship uh, and then we have a lot of students who work for us. So I usually have two or three BSc students, two MFA students, and then maybe another sundry one or two, depending on what funding we have. Um, I pay everyone. We don't have volunteers in our lab. I'm trying to teach younger artists and scientists how to like get paid for the work that they do. Um, I'm very clear with them about only working the hours you're paid for. And then, so I'm also doing professional development with them. I'm working with them on their own practices. And I should say in the work group, we do talk a lot about their own professional development steps. So hopefully by the time they graduate, you know, I help them get into grad studies or their next job, or we've worked on some projects with them that can help them take the next steps professionally as well. So there's like a lot of mentorship, a lot of like joking, pleasure, ridiculousness, and then also a lot of hard work. Like we sweat, we work hard. That's huge. Like everything that you said, I think is so so important not only for a healthy working environment but also to be a student and then to receive paid employment through a lab that's going to help foster your career like that is that is massive I know in my experience at my old school people who worked in labs were I would say vast majority volunteers so I'm um, I'm wondering like do you ever come across students who have of multidisciplinary interests as well and like what are some things that you might tell them because I'm sure a lot of students here like no you just have to pick one path and that can be very frustrating. Sure sure so um, when people take the bioart class I let them know on day one like you do not have to graduate and become a bioartist like I'm not trying to indoctrinate people into what I'm trying to do I tell them to think of it as a methodologies class a class will teach you how to get out of places where you belong and how to be an artist in those spaces, how to communicate with professionals from radically different fields. And so some of the people who graduated from working with me do go on and work in bioart, but lots of them do not. And they do really cool other stuff. I will say a lot of the students that come out of our program as a whole have a social practice component, right? So for example, Broken City Lab, which is a very famous project that came out of Windsor, was started in a, not a class of mine, but in another undergraduate class at the University of Windsor. There's a whole bunch of faculty in our department who are working around those questions. And it is a specialty of our school. I'll tell you a couple of other little tidbits. So one of the best compliments that I got from a student once over the years, at the end of a class, she took me aside and she said, what I learned from your class is I know I wanna be something that doesn't exist yet. And I think I like that. You don't have to be an artist or a scientist. You don't have to be a printmaker or a painter. I think that the careers and the innovations of the future are going to be things that don't exist yet. 
or that integrate things that don't exist yet with things that do or have existed in the past. So I'm trying to teach students that fearlessness and the confidence, maybe even the bravery. I would say specifically in Windsor, we have a little bit of a like municipal down view of ourselves, right? Sometimes we think, well, if it came out of Windsor, it can't be great. And that is like not true. We have really great talent, makerly, hands-on, mechanical talent here. And so I'm just trying to help the next generation of Windsorites reimagine the possibilities of what they can be. That is awesome. And it's, it's definitely true what you're saying about how we kind of look down on ourselves or on our city as a whole. When in fact, instead of taking that attitude, we could just focus on actively making it better than it already is in whatever way possible, whether that exists yet or not. But we also have things in Windsor that they don't have anywhere else. So I have taught bioart all over the world. And one of the things that I noticed about Windsorites in my experience with the students is a fearlessness around mechanical making, building, and around dismantling things and putting them back together, trying new technical hands-on things. And I'm sure that comes from the auto industry. I'm sure that comes from kids growing up with a car and pieces in the 80s on their front lawn, right? And uh, when I taught in other cities, which I will not mean at this moment, some of the students were more fearful. They were worried about getting their hands dirty or messing their hair, or maybe they were worried. They knew a lot about contemporary art, but they were like afraid of breaking something. The students here do not give me any of those fears at all because they know if you break something, you can usually fix it. Or if you can't, that's okay. Like there's some embedded municipal knowledges here that are really valuable to makerly cultures like BioArt. And, and speaking of that kind of fearlessness too, or um, maybe not like fearlessness, but bravery and, and becoming something that doesn't exist yet. Do you have any advice on what it takes for someone to really be brave enough to pursue what they want to do when they might be experiencing adversity either on the financial front or you know parental discouragement or general societal disapproval. I teach a whole class on professional development at the university and we address all these things because really it's like a whole thing right there's a million little things that you need to consider but I'll give you some examples of things that we would address in that class so I encourage students to imagine what they would do if there were no rules or no one to disappoint and then I talk them out of all the reasons why they think they can't do that. I encourage students to set five or 10 year goals, ambitious ones. And I, I told you, you fall in the cracks, you may not get that goal, but if you have something you're working towards, a goal, then you know what to do on a Saturday when you're bored and you're not sure what to do. Or it helps you make decisions. If you're faced with a couple of options and you're not sure what to do, you can ask yourself, does that take me closer to or farther away from my goal? So it's really important to have like a North Star and like a big one and one like far away that you can do these like 100,000 little steps towards every day. Other things that I do, I talk to students about um, how to create their own financial security. I think there's a lot of pressure from parents and a lot of pressure in this city for a pension and a retirement plan, right? And those things are very helpful. I know, know that as a middle-aged person with children. And so I teach students how to maybe take control of their finances at a very young age and start, if you start saving now, $75 a month could really build into and could replace the security that you might get from a pension from a unionized position, for example. I talk a lot about mentorship. Uh, you need to find role models and mentors and you can know them personally, but you can also not. So if there's someone, even if you don't know them personally, but they're a role model for either a personal or professional goal, you can then look at them, for example, 
You can also look at their history, like find their resume. They're often online. What did they do in school? What was their first job like? Like those types of things can really help you figure out some steps. If you can have mentors you know personally, it could either be a, a person you don't know very well, but you approach them with a really big compliment. Like, I really admire this aspect of your career and these are the reasons why. They will often give you even one afternoon of like download of advice that they had from when they were young, very important. But also if you know people well in your community, if you know a little bit better, it's okay to say to someone that you know a little bit, I really admire your career and I am an emerging artist or an emerging thinker, an emerging community engagement person. Would you mind uh, mentoring me? Uh, would you mind meeting with me a couple times a year? We could just talk about like, what are my goals and how's it going? Are there suggestions? Are there people you could introduce me to? Because one of the things that I did looking back at times, sometimes I reinvented a whole wheel. And now I know as a more senior artist to sort of like, if I don't know something, I ask around first and see if someone's already sorted out that problem. And that can save you like three to seven years of heartache. I'm going to take this advice myself. I don't know about you, Abby Lee. Oh, same here. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) This is very good advice. That's so important. Like all of those things that you've said, I think sometimes are discouraged or sometimes a lot of the time discouraged for students when they're coming up through the education system um, based on ideas that exist on like what a good job looks like and what a good life looks like and that's not the case for everyone so just having that support in finding what's good for each individual student. The other thing I would say to young people is like don't be afraid of failure. It never looks like what you think it's going to look like and your career your goal will probably change by the time you get there. Like we all like have very very frustrating days and things do not go our way a million times and I can't tell you how many times people told me that this was a stupid idea and I'll never have an art career or do you know what I mean like and you have to kind of be like you know take that one take that setback Um, I had a couple of really big gigs canceled as a result of the pandemic and I have this technique it's called a a, a stiff drink and a good cry and then you move on the the people who are successful are not the people who don't have failure or who have it easy The people who are successful are the people who are able to move on after failure. Absolutely. Every successful person who gives advice always says, make sure that you fail, essentially. Don't panic. Don't stop. Like, you know, if you fail even 10 times, you have this feeling like, oh, maybe it's not my turn or I don't belong here. The other thing you can do is if you, let's say it is really happening again and again in this one area, then maybe shift your goal a little or find a different community. Like, just find where you belong. Find where people celebrate what you are. Uh, And that might take trial and error. It's like dating, right? You got to date around a little bit. (laughs) So I would say the same thing professionally. Just if if it's really not going well in one area, try and push because sometimes you can get somewhere by just pushing through. But if that's not panning out, you also want to go somewhere where people like you and they want to, you know, they want to promote you and they like your work. So sometimes it's also about finding the right community or space for yourself. As we start closing the conversation and on a lighter question for you, what's the favorite thing about the work that you're doing? Oh gosh, there's so many. So first of all, I love that ecstatic feeling of being with other organisms and other humans. I love it. I call it the feeling. Like it's actually, it makes all the paperwork and all the meetings worthwhile. And I have it in the lab. It's like, it's again, it makes me feel like gardening or I have it sometimes with my kids, but I also, I have it sometimes, I do a lot of these sort of like big events and I love this moment where things start happening that even I didn't imagine. And I get, I get what I call the feeling and it feels like entropy or being part of the universe. And I really enjoy that. So that that's probably one of the main motivating factors and, and joys that I get out of this work. 
Ah, uh, that's, I'm okay. I'm like, I'm getting flustered because I love that you spoke to that feeling. I think that we all have that, that feeling and that's very relatable, even if the feeling comes from very different paths. I think we all know what it's like to feel in flow and feel like we're, we're in the spot that we should be in. Thank you so much for your time and for speaking to your work. I have learned a ton today. I'm so excited to go and learn more about bio art after this. And I'll, I'll pass it to you, Michaela, as well to, to close it out. Yeah, this has been inspiring in, in multiple ways. So thank you so much. Um, your, your intelligence and your passion just shone through so clearly. And I'm sure everyone who listens to this is going to feel like just so much better after hearing you speak. And they're going to be probably interested as well to, just like Abby Lee and I, pursue research on uh, bio art further and like check it out when the pandemic is done and we get the chance. Absolutely, more generally. So, so far we do do events and stuff, but we've really been in the university. And so this new storefront space on University Avenue is attempting to have a more direct interface with just regular Windsorites from all different backgrounds. So um, I really invite all of your audience as well to come by and say hello. We haven't set any hours yet. I have no idea how any of that's going to work. We just have to wait this thing out and see. But we'll be really publicly uh, there uh, in the future. And I really encourage everyone to stop in. I know I'm coming. I yeah, know. we're in. We're in. <laughs> 100%. That just makes me think of something right now. I don't know if this would be like a quick answer, but... I mean, coronavirus is, it's a virus, it's a living thing, obviously. So has coronavirus had any sort of effect on anything that you've been doing, like inspiration for future projects or like beyond the obvious, like the way that it's halted our progress with things? A hundred percent. Okay. So like everyone else, when coronavirus sort of unfold, I'm like depressed, I'm sad, I'm scared, I'm worried. I, you know, I'm having all these feelings and uh, moping around the house in my pajamas. Oh, and I'm trying to homeschool kids while teaching at the university. It was a hot mess at the beginning. And my partner, he said to me, he's like, Jennifer, you got to snap out of it. He's like, this is your moment. This is BioArts moment. <laughs> so the BioArt community has been very active during this time. There's all sorts of exhibits and online workshops and chat rooms. And because we also know, like, we can really read the science and engage with the cultural unfurling of this situation very adeptly. I've done a lot of work internationally in that way. We're also all showing and talking all over the world right now through these Zoom portals. But I would say also in a bigger sense, absolutely, like the impact of this event is, is, is going to, for the next decade, have an uh, impact on my research, my topic, and my methodologies. I think that, that, for example, just these virtual interfaces will not go away. We're not going to go back to the way things were before. I think that we will integrate our experiences during this time into a more mainstream uh, lifestyle once this is gone. So yes, 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 and yes. Thank you for speaking to that, because that is one of the most major things that we could talk about, right, is the, the coronavirus and the arts, and even more specifically, bio art. Good for you as well, because the difficulty of this time is it's sort of hanging over and it's coming up at, in more strong feelings at different points it's kind of like coming in waves and uh, it's not easy to be like all right you know what I'm just going to make lemonade out of lemons I'm going to put this into art but you did that and that's fantastic and I think it's going to come up with some really really interesting works I'm really happy with the work but I have to say that's almost a side effect what it also did is it allowed me to use the systems of art making and research that I'm very comfortable with and I enjoy to help me move through this time. So it's also been like really 
healthy for me as a way to then respond to this very unusual situation. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed chatting with you both. I'm really excited about the things that we've talked about, but also really excited to meet you and to see some of the new directions that the AGW is taking. Thank you so much to Dr. Jennifer Willett for sharing your insights, your expertise, and your time. And thank you so much for listening to Start Talking. We hope that you keep talking about all of the things that we've spoken about today and all of the art in our local Windsor-Essex community, even long after our podcast episode is over. If you're interested in finding out more about the Art Gallery of Windsor, You can find us on our website at www.agw.ca or you can follow us on social media at agw401. Have a great day, everyone. Stay safe and be well.